And so let me read just the first few verses of Amos chapter 3. We're going to be in Amos chapter 3 and 4 today. I'll read the first few verses. Um, We'll pray, and then we will go. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he's taken nothing? Does a bird fall into a snare on the earth where there's no trap for it? Does a snare spring up out of the ground when it's taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Let's pray. Father, as we, as, we, as we earnestly desire to hear your voice in your word, help us to understand. Help us to understand your heart toward your people. Help us to understand our hearts toward you and where we need to repent, where we need to change our lives, where we need to turn toward you. Would you make that apparent to each one of us? Where we need to encourage one another, would you help bring that to mind? You have so much to say in your rich word. We desire to hear it. Please help us to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. And so when we pick up the Old Testament prophets here, it's a little bit like going through someone's mail, you know, and if you pick out like one, or I don't know, maybe it's more like in a text convo, right, if I'm going to be young, right, but if you pick out just one little message, that little message could be read out of context. It's hard to know, you know, what is really going on that led up to that point. And these prophets can be a little bit like that. And so today, um, before, I'm going to take a little bit of time at the beginning here, and then we'll race through these two chapters at the end. But I want to understand, focus a little bit on what does it mean? Like, where are the people in their relationship with God? And specifically, what is the covenant? What is this covenant of God that puts these people in this special, special situation so that they are called God's people, specially, but also so when God says, Because I've only known you, therefore I will punish you. What does it mean to be God's people? So, what is a covenant? So, a covenant, it could be defined as a solemn promise confirmed by an oath or a sign. And sometimes we talk about a covenant is, you know, it's kind of like a contract, it's a deal, but it's, it's not a deal. It's not like a legal contract. It's a, it's a, it's, it's, you call it a blood oath. It's a family bond. It's not just between two disinterested parties that are doing business. It's between two people that are bound together in really a loving, familial-like relationship. And so when God called Abraham, this is a great example of covenant, he called him out of, you know, the land of Ur, out of the east, and he says, um, go to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And Abraham followed God, and Abraham asked him at one point, how will I know that I'll get that blessing? And this is when God makes this covenant. And you know the scene. He, he like puts Abraham to sleep. He says, Abraham, get all these animals. He cuts up the animals. There's dead animals laying around. He puts them to sleep. God walks through, as it were, in a vision, through these pieces of animal. So again, the covenant is a solemn promise confirmed by this oath or this sign. And this is God's solemn oath, solemn sign, solemn promise. Um, and um, and, he, and he, he swears to him by his own name, as it were, that Abraham's descendants would surely come into this land. He would surely have all of these descendants. They would be slaves for 400 years, but he would surely bring them back. And it's like this oath, this promise, this loving promise is confirmed. 
So this covenant is a solemn promise confirmed by an oath or a sign. But when we talk about the covenant in the prophets, what they're really pointing forward to is 400 years later. And we know that when God brought his people Israel out of Egypt by a strong arm, by a mighty hand, he did it through Moses as, as this leader. And as he brought them out of, um, out of Egypt, why did he bring them out of Egypt? He said, I remember the promise, the covenant that I made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, your fathers. I will do this thing. He's being faithful to this prominent promise like he said he would. And when he led them out, he brought them back to Mount Sinai. And when they were brought to Mount Sinai, it says this in Exodus 19. It says, The Lord called them out to the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and to, the peop- and to tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Right? These are like marvelous blessings, not a cold promise or something like that. And then after going on in verse 19, we see he's going to meet with them specially. Now, God was always, you know, God's present everywhere. And he, he was before them in the pillar of the cloud and the smoke. So God was with them. But now he was going to meet them like even more directly. He said, get ready, consecrate yourselves. And God comes on the mountain, lightning, thunder, flashing, you know, a kind of a terrifying thing. The trumpet sounds out. And when he meets with them on the mountain, he establishes his covenant. And it starts off, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You know, look at what he's done. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, you know, and so on. It goes through the Ten Commandments. And it follows with a few chapters of, as my people, this is my instruction. This is my, this is my law. You know, he says later on in, um, in Deuteronomy, do this and live, right? Choose, I've got this before you. I, I will bless you. I will give you what you need. I will run the people out of the land. Everything is yours. Choose life today. So don't think of God's law as like this um, city ordinance. It's like, well, as long as I, you know, keep my grass cut and my cars out of the street and I keep my nose clean, I guess I won't get in trouble. It's not that at all. Think of God's law more as this is God's mind, This is God's instruction, right? This is not something that he's holding over the head of a people just waiting, so I'm going to drop this on, they'll they'll really see they need Jesus, right? That was not the entire, like the aspect of it. Of course, it does drive us to Jesus. But it's really, it's this is my mind. This This is how I designed you to live. Abraham didn't have all of this direct instruction, and now I'm pulling back the curtain just a little bit more. Follow me. And of course, he goes on, and he, and he, but Part of, part of the covenant is not just, I will bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you, but it's, you be holy as I am holy. And going with these great, along with these great blessings are great threats um, of disobedience. God has proved himself faithful. Did God grant Abraham descendants? Yes. Did God um, bring the people out of bondage after 400 years? Yes. Everything just like he said, God is faithful, and he calls his people, be faithful. Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 13, says, It is is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, gods of other people who are around you. For the Lord your God is, uh, is in your midst. He is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. So God is laying before them this life and this death. Follow me, and you will be blessed in unimaginable ways. Walk away from me, 
Not only is there nothing, it's kind of like you're worse off than the people around you who never knew. With great blessing, with great knowledge, comes this great responsibility. And as Pastor Matt pointed out back in January, this really struck me when he said it, in, near the end of Leviticus, I used to see that as kind of this, a bunch of threats. All right, if you don't do this, I'm going to, you know, release the wild beasts. I'm going to, like, bring the armies in, you know, as just punishment. But it's more than that. It wasn't just that. God's desire was not, well, I'll show you. His desire was in each one of these things, um, he says, um, it wasn't vengeful wrath, but it was discipline. It was a hard discipline. If you don't listen, then I'm going to visit you with panic, with disease, with defeat. If you still won't listen, I'm going to send the wild beasts. If you still won't listen, and God the whole time is, I'm not going to say gently, but the goals of this, what you could call hard providence, is to pull the people back to himself. And so this is the covenant. This is the background. This is the story that we need to understand someone like Amos and really all the prophets. He's speaking out to God's people, not, I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you, but it's come back. This is insanity. I hold out blessing, and yet you still stubbornly refuse. And so you can see why this special relationship would bring special responsibility. Okay, so now coming back to, um, coming back to Amos, it says, starting in verse 1, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought out of Egypt. Right? Can you hear that same sort of thing? It's not just nobody. This is this special relationship. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Again, God says, why did I choose you? It's not because you were special. It's not because you were mighty. It's not because you looked sharp. It's because I loved you and I set my love on you. You only have I known of all the families of the earth, and therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. So next, starting in verse 3, we have, you know, I put up catechism because it starts with a C, but you know what a catechism is? Catechism is like a teaching device, it's like questions and answers, right? And it's, a way we can, it's a good way to teach kids anything, and famously Christians have used this for teaching the faith, but we might call this a consequences catechism because these questions that are coming up are going to make this point that, um, that God doesn't do anything for no reason, right? And that as the judgment is being warned against, and as the judgment will fall, this is a, result, a direct result of the actions of the people themselves. Re- these are in the form of like rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions being like questions like, we don't expect an answer, right? But when God says, Adam, where are you? After he sinned, this isn't like, I wonder where Adam is. But of course, it's like, Adam, what are you doing? What are you thinking? What drove you to this? And it's supposed to cause us to stop and, and consider. And so that what we, that's what we have here. In verse 3, it says, do two walk together? unless they've agreed to meet. Another translation, and this really isn't so much like, well, I guess people could bump into each other and go for a walk, but the idea is, is that when people have a direction, when they're going a certain way, they do this by agreement. Another translation says, can two people walk together without agreeing on the direction? Is if God is saying, where are you going? I haven't changed, but you have turned around and you've started to walk away. What's going on? But, listen, but look at these next, next verses. This is, I would love you to have your Bible open for this because these next verses are really interesting. Starting in verse 4, you see these two pairs. Watch, the first and the second question is always related. It says, Do, um, does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? And the answer is no, because if a lion roared in the forest when he has no prey, the prey is going to scatter and he's going to get no prey. But when he's about to pounce, 
you know, I guess, I don't know, I don't know much about lions, but I guess roar, they roar, and then pounce, right? I guess it's like, look at me before I get you. I don't know why they would do that. But this is the point. The roar comes when he's about to pounce, when there's danger. The next question is, a young lion cry out from his den if he's taken nothing. The pouncing has happened. He's just kind of standing over his prey at that point, devouring it. Warning, and it's urgent. It's coming. And then judgment. Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there's no trap set for it? Well, of course, a bird can't be trapped if there's no snare. So the trap is set. It's the warning. Does a snare spring up from the ground when it's taken nothing? Right? When the bird lands in that trap, boom. So same sort of thing. Um, Consequence follows pretty quickly from the warning. Is a trumpet blown in the city and the people are not afraid? right? This is war is coming. The watchman on the wall sees, maybe blows the horn or, you know, but at this point, war is imminent. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Judgment has happened. And incidentally, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? He's saying, when this comes, don't look at it and saying like, oh, I guess the Assyrians grew pretty strong. Similarly, when natural disaster comes, our first thought shouldn't be, oh man, that stinks, right? Too bad that happened better prepare for next time, our reaction should be, what is the Lord doing? What is going on? And in this particular case, he is assuring, I'll read the next couple of verses, the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? The idea is this, is the warning is being given. The judgment is deserved. The sin is real. Will the people listen? When disaster comes, will it be recognized as God faithfully fulfilling what he said was going to happen? Now, the next goes on to the consequence itself. This has really been setting the groundwork. God will be righteous in all that he does. And he goes on, he says, Proclaim proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt. Say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria to watch. So he's, this is shameful. He's calling the enemies, like the, uh, the historic enemies of Israel, to come and behold what God is going to do. God set up his people to be a light to the nations, something that would give him glory. And God is saying, if you're not going to glorify the nations by your holiness and your obedience and by witness to what I have done for you, you're going to glorify me in showing my faithfulness in meeting out punishment for those who deserve it. So it's, it's shameful. He's airing kind of his own dirty laundry in a sense, but he will get his glory, even punishment. Verse 11, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as an adversary, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Right? So God clearly describes what's going to happen in the midst of this peace and prosperity where it looks like everything's just going to keep rolling along just fine. I mean, does that sound a little bit familiar? right where we are. We've been rolling on um, kind of the capital of our, you know, past faithfulness for generations now, practically. But Amos speaks into Israel where there's this peace and prosperity. You think it won't happen, but in a generation, it's all going to come crumbling down. And for time, I am going to skip the rest of chapter three, but it's, you got the idea. Now, chapter 4 is almost like another, it starts off the same way, hear this word! So it's almost like a new sermon, but the themes are pretty similar, which is why I'm sure Matt asked me to um, take both chapters. It says this, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, 
who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. So this is, um, the oracle goes out first to the women. So when he says cows of Bashan, this is a reference primarily to the women, not that the women are the ones who are the guilty ones only, but because this is typical of one of the sins of Israel um, that, he is, that he is specifically calling out and condemning. Um, and what this is, is a, um, this peace and prosperity, supposedly blessed by God people, um, are caught in the sin of just total self-indulgence. Um, so these women are typical of the self-indulgent, self-pleasing nature of the Israelites. He graphically calls them these cows of Bashan, which of course is insulting. Why would, oh, and these cows of Bashan, they actually has a meaning in the place, right? This is where like, this is like Texas prime, I don't know that much about meat, like the Texas prime A cattle, but this is like, these are the sleek, the nice, the fattened, like the prime, the best looking, you know, renowned, you know, cattle. Why does he use such an insulting image? And a commentator puts it like this. He describes a way of life which excludes all personal spiritual dimensions. The women folk are just like so many prime head of cattle content with a purely animal existence, wanting nothing more. In their kind, they were champions. Bashan was noted for its cattle, but it was a holy body-centered, flesh-and-bones contest in which they excelled. These are women who just wanted what they wanted. Comfort, ease, dominating their weak-willed husbands just for no other reason, just to get whatever luxuries there were, such as fine wine. And even worse, uh, and, and I, oh, I should add, you know, what a contrast with like the, the ladies called out in 1 Peter 3, what we're called to, where Peter says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with, uh, with the imperishable, perishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit in which God's sight is very precious, right? This is the polar opposite. God sees this feminine spirit as precious, and, we, and, and he sees this as this polar opposite. But it's characteristic of the entire um, people, of, people of Israel. Worse than this, this is done on the backs of those who, um, of the poor, of the needy. They're being crushed if you look at those verses. God goes on like, this is such an abomination, this anti-love-your-God, anti-love-your-neighbor attitude, that he goes on, and it results in this oath. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that the days are coming up upon you and they will take you away by hooks. And there, again, it's this graphic image of, is comfort where your heart is? Is your self-indulgence what you want? You are heaping up for yourself all of these temporary, earthy, futile treasures and what's going to happen, I tell you, you're not going to get to enjoy this comfort. You will be ripped out of your land, either literally by the Assyrian army, or even figuratively, as easily as someone snaps up a fish with a hook. The second sin is a self-indulgence in worship, you could say. And this is almost like, if we, as we read these verses, starting in verse 4, come to Bethel and transgress. God is almost like mocking, taunting. It sounds a little different to us to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer sacrifices of thanksgiving, that which is leavened, and proclaim the freewill offerings. This is what you love to do, Israel. The people have drifted from their worship and are doing this. It has this look of religiosity. It has this, this veneer of religiousness, sacrificing the morning, regular tithes. But their heart was far from God, and that probably conjures other 
you know, verses in Scripture where God's desire is not for these religious circumstances. It's not for us to show up in church. It's not for us to spend six days not thinking about the Lord and then coming into church and, you know, being holy for a day, right? But God wants our hearts all the time. Um, and again, that's, and this is something that's really um, a good contrast to that would be David in Psalm 51 when he's repenting. He's turning back to God after horrible sin, but this is the heart God is looking for. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You don't delight in sacrifice, right? Give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering, you know, with no heart. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. But not so with the people of Israel. So what does God, a faithful covenant God, do with a a faithless, covenant-breaking people? And I'm not going to read through the entire thing here, but listen to this. God is warning his people, just like he said he would in Leviticus. He says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, meaning no bread, no gunk in your teeth. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me. I withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain to one city, send no rain to the other city. One field would have grain, and the field, um, and the field on which it did not rain would, ha- would wither. Two or three cities, they'd wander from one place to another following the rain. It wasn't total annihilation. It was a sign from God. Shake people out of their complacency over history. I struck you with blight and mildew so that your, your, your fig trees and your olive trees were devoured and so on, declares the Lord. But you did not return to me. Skipping down to verse 11, I overthrew some of you as in battle, and when God, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were bland, a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me. God speaks to his people in these circumstances of life. He speaks in his word, of course. He speaks to us um, like we see his, his power and his wisdom in creation. He speaks to us in the circumstances of life. And in the people of Israel, they were deaf to his word. They didn't want to hear his prophets. They were deaf to what God was doing around them. Through all of this, they stubbornly would not return. Incidentally, I mean, look at what God is doing around us. This is not just something over the last five years, but I mean, you could go back a century. God has sent world war. What has the Christian West done? How has it responded? God has sent like the scourge of communism, killing tens of millions of people in the last century. What about it? God has just sent, you know, moral and sexual craziness into this world. Everything is going, God sends all of these circumstances into our world. Are we going to listen? Do we hear? And so finally, what is God's response in verse 12? Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Israel was being prepared to meet their God one way or another. Are they going to meet him with their own comfortable lifestyle, their, their checkbooks, their, you know, whatever they've accomplished? Are they going to meet God? Are they preparing to meet God with their false worship, their unauthorized worship that maybe feels pretty good to them but is not what God desired? Or will they finally hear the words of the prophet and discern God's message in providential events and understand God's faithfulness? Prepare to meet your God. So is there any grace in this? So we read through these two chapters quickly. Is there any grace at all in these two chapters? And the answer is yes. And so here's a couple of things. First of all, there's grace in God's character. If you look at the last verse, 11, yet you, uh, oops, I'm sorry, that's not 11. 
13, it says, it says characteristics of the sovereign God, and he says, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. The Lord. You see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D? When you see that, that is God's covenant name, Yahweh. Like we titled, you know, the, the, the series, Yahweh Roars, right? This is God calling back to his people. When you see God's name, there is hope. When God called his people in the first covenant, in fact, when the people first sinned and Moses interceded for the people and God relented, Moses said, show me who you are. Let me see you, God. And God put him in the cleft of the rock, right? And he walks past Moses and he declares his name, the Lord, the Lord, or it should say Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Um, And he, he basically... God's very name is his gracious character, right? He is a God of mercy. So even, so even though he's kind of becoming their enemy at this point, his name is being declared. And where there's God's name is God's character. And where there's God's character, there's mercy, there's graciousness, there's holiness, but there is mercy, encouragement to turn to him. Second is there's grace in the warning itself. Judgment is here. Judgment is urgent. The lion is roaring, which means that he is about to pounce but not yet, right? There is a window. There is a time. In their case, it's a generation, which I'm learning goes by like that. There is time. And so the second reason that there is something in there, I mean, furthermore, putting these two things together, remember the story of Jonah. Jonah, he goes to the city and what's his message? Yet 40 days and the Lord will destroy this city. Is there grace in that? Doesn't sound like it, but what did they do? The king, the king, <laughs> the king says, um, Let's repent. I mean, who knows? Maybe God will be gracious and spare us, right? There doesn't even have to be that call explicit, like, turn to Jesus. You can come to, I mean, you hear that and you just cast your hope on God. I don't know what to do, Um, but there is mercy. So here's the application, and we're going to wrap up. The first thing that is here, this is the whole thing is about God speaking to a stubborn, deaf, sinful people. We need to hear the call of the Lord. This doesn't just apply to a people long ago that were there, but this applies to us even today. If you read through the New Testament, the first couple chapters of Revelation even, God says, repent, turn back to me, because if you don't, I'll take away my lampstand. You will no longer be a legit church. We need to hear him. Hear how he speaks in his word. I mean, praise God that you're here today. He is speaking to you through his word. Hear him. If there's areas in your life where there is sin, um, bring those to the surface. Pray with the people who are going to pray with you. Hear the word of God. Um, if there's circumstances going on in your life, that does not necessarily mean that there's some deep sin that God's trying to pull out. But it might. Okay, so we need to, we need to search. We need to hear. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And then secondly is we need to repent. It's not good enough just to hear, say you're sorry, but we got to throw ourselves on, um, on the mercy of God. The great thing is, is that God did not just leave his people where they were, but eventually he did promise a couple hundred years later, I will send a new covenant. I'm going to create a new covenant. It's better than the last one because that last one, there were, there were stone tablets that we gazed at and we knew what God's will was, but we didn't have it in us to do it. But God said, I will give you a new covenant and then on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus served the supper. And, um, and Jesus said, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. This new covenant is a new solemn promise by God confirmed in an oath. 
in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so when he says, I will remember their sin no more, we have that firm new covenant in the Lord Jesus. And so, you know, I'm begging you, hear the word of God, what he says to you now. It's different for each one of us. Repent wherever repentance needs to be done. But in the end, Jesus has done everything that we need. He has given us, we are the covenant people of God. It's a new covenant. It's a better covenant. We should rejoice in it, but also fear because you know God like few people know God. Take that responsibility seriously and rejoice in that great relationship. So let's pray. Father, you are a great God and wise beyond what we can, you know, what we even know. Thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself to us. You do say that, you know, you, you don't do things in secret, yet you open the book to your people. You've opened the book now to your whole world in the life and the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And so each heart here, I would pray, Father, they would hear, that they would turn to you if they need to give themselves to you wholly heart, wholeheartedly for the first time, let it happen. If we need to turn back, let it happen, God. We can't do that without you and your spirit. And we trust in you completely, and we trust in the work of your son, Jesus, completely. Thank you for helping us. And in Jesus' name, Amen.